Amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. And as you do, you can open up your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 12. We are at the bitter end of Ecclesiastes. Some might call it a bitter book. Um, but we are at the end where we're going to kind of, kind of resolve where this long journey through the pain and toil and sorrow and brokenness of life has led us. What conclusions we can draw from it. And today we are going to be focused really on two words. Two words. And those words are fear God. Fear God. When you hear that command, the command to fear God, what do you think of? What crosses your mind? If I were to ask you, what does that mean? What does it mean to fear God? What would you say? How would you answer me? The idea of fearing God is all over Scripture. It is from front to back in our Bibles everywhere, but I, I think we very easily gloss over it. When's the last time you had a conversation about the fear of God with a brother or sister? When's the last time that came up in conversation? I'm a pastor, and it's been a hot minute for me. Right? This is just something that just tends to kind of fade to the background. But if we look at the way that it's addressed in Scripture, it's anywhere but in the background. And the ending of Ecclesiastes draws that out. It really drives home the fact that this fear of God is not something we can afford to just breeze by lightly or to sideline. The last two verses of Ecclesiastes say this. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So our passage holds out the fear of God as one half or one aspect of the whole duty of man. And, and actually, that phrase even sells it a little bit short, because if you Go to the original language this is written, and there's no word for duty. That's something the translator's provider. It just says, this is the whole of man. This is just the entirety. This is it. This is the summary of everything that it should encompass your life as a human being, is to fear God and to keep his commandments. This is anything but something that we can ignore or not take seriously. It's at the very core of what it means to live as a human in this world. It means that our lives should be consumed, overwhelmed by the fear of God. And it means that it is good for our lives to be consumed and overwhelmed by the fear of God. So why is it that we probably give so little mind to something that is so central? It is so central to how we live and function here. Well, I think there's a lot of reasons, actually. Uh, we have a really hard time knowing what to do with these two words put together for several reasons. First is fear itself. Fear itself is your first connotation of fear, good or bad. Almost all of you, probably, I'm willing to bet 99% of you at least, is bad. It's not something that you're out there after. No, no one said, what do you need most in your life? I need some more fear. Not anxious enough. 
Bring on the fear. Like, nobody says that. Fear is not something we want. It's uncomfortable. We want to avoid it or get out of it as quickly as we can. And so when we, we get pressed to fear, it's not something we want to do. I don't want to fear. I want to do something different. But then there's the idea that it's not just fear, it's to fear God. And in some ways, this seems fine and proper. You have to fear God. God is God. But there's also something that seems off about that when we think about other things that Scripture tells us to do. Because there's a whole lot of parts of Scripture that doesn't make it seem like we should be fearing God at all, that we should have a very different response to Him. And at first glance, even when we, when we look at Scripture, it seems like it almost talks out of both sides of its mouth about this. Even in the very same passage. Because fear of God is the central theme that runs through it, and yet, fear not is the most frequent command in all of Scripture. And sometimes they're paired right together. In Exodus 20, this is right after God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. They've, he's led his people out of Egypt, they've crossed the Red Sea, they've gone to Mount Sinai, God gives them the commandments, and it's quite the scene. This is right after the Ten Commandments are given. We pick up at Exodus 20, verse 18. It says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, you speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Now listen to what Moses says. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. In one sentence, we have, don't be afraid, so that you will fear. Makes sense that this is a little bit confusing for us. So what we need to do is go a little bit deeper, right? We need to take some time to explore what is this fear of God that we're called to. Uh, it's too big of a deal. It's too important. It is too central to our life to just settle for the confusion and for not knowing and to just not talk about it. We have to deal with this. And Lord willing, we're going to see what this fear of God is. That, that should dominate and, and fill our lives. And we're going to see why the call to that is such a glorious and good thing. Let me pray for us and ask for the Spirit's help this morning. Uh, Lord, we always need your help. I always need your help when I stand up here to give your people your word. Um, we always need your help to receive it well. But I feel it even more today. This is such a profound and and deep thing that I feel so inadequate to communicate. And so I just want to thank you that uh, it never depends on me and it never depends on us. Uh, Lord, it is your word and you minister it to your people by your spirit. And so we are asking you to do what you always do, what you promised to do, that you would care for your people through your word or that you would give us soft hearts that are receptive to it. Lord, that anything that comes out of my mouth that is not from you would be forgotten and fade away and would not distract uh, from your word and what you have for your people this morning. We'll pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So first let's talk about just fear itself. To fear or not to fear. Right? We've got this whole thread. Fear God, fear God, fear God. But then we've got, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. What do we do with that in Scripture? Should we, so let's start off with, should we fear, should we fear God at all? 
Well, one thing that Scripture makes very clear is that to not fear God, to have no fear of God, is utterly foolish and devastating. It's absolutely devastating. And we see this in the way that the secular world operates. The secular world operates in this way. They have no fear of God. They live as if God does not exist. That there's no higher authority than themselves. Man is the pinnacle when it comes to that. Borrow the, the phrase from judges, everyone does what's right in their own eyes. That sounds great at first, right? It sounds like freedom, right? I, nobody gets to tell me what to do. I do my own thing. But it's deceptive because it's actually not freedom at all. Because what we've seen in Ecclesiastes is Solomon has looked at the world and how we interact with it is what he's come up against over and over again. And what frustrates him so much is his limitations and the limitations that people have. Right? He's talked about how we can't know the future, how we don't have power to enjoy things on our own. We can't make ourselves memorable. We all get forgotten. We can't control the seasons of our lives. We can't hold on to the prosperity and wealth that we get. We can't keep ourselves well. We can't control other people. And we can't avoid death. Now, when man is so limited, and yet he's the highest authority that you acknowledge, there's no freedom in that you end up afraid of absolutely everything. Because all this stuff is beyond your control and there's nowhere to look to change it or affect it if, you, if your view of life stops there, if that's all it is. So this illusion of freedom stops because man can't do, handle these things. So everything ends up being a threat. Sickness is a threat. Government is a threat. Your food is a threat. Eating the wrong things everything becomes dangerous and threatening because you can't control it and there's nobody you can go to who does. Everything is dangerous to you. Is there anything that our world is not afraid of in some way? We are racked with fear and anxiety. There's a reason why Solomon often talked about how it was better to never have been born. That's how fearful and hard and painful he found life in this world when God was not in the proper place that he belongs. To fear nothing greater than yourself means that you will be afraid of everything you can't control, which turns out is pretty much everything. There's a reason that Solomon wrote in Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. It's little wonder that as our world grows increasingly fearful and controlling, that it does that as it tries to create more and more distance from God. That's what happens. The further you get from God, the more fearful and more controlling you have to be out of sheer desperation in this world. So that answers the first question. Yes, we should fear. We should fear something. We should fear God. But that's not enough of an answer, right? Because we still haven't dealt with the fact that, that sometimes we're told to fear and sometimes we're not. Right? How, so how do we reconcile that? We haven't solved our problem. And the reality is that Scripture holds out to us two different kinds of fear when it comes to God. 
And it's not two different words. That's the first thing to realize. There's just two primary words that get used in Hebrew for fear, but they get used for the good kind and the bad kind. Um, so it's not like this is the good fear word, this is the bad fear word, and then we just solve the problem and that's it. No, the same words get used for the good kind of fear and the bad kind of fear. Well, one thing to note about them, and this is kind of is a thread that runs through Hebrew, is that the words to describe fear, they're very tied to the physical responses to fear. Right? So they are closely related to, um, it's not just the internal state, but the outward manifestations of fear. So the, the words for Hebrew, the words for fear in Hebrew are very closely related to like trembling, right? The, these extreme outward expressions of fear. Right, so you'll often see the like translated fear and trembling. It's using those two words that are tied in with this. But those words get used for both the fear of the Lord we are called to have and fear that we are called to avoid. And I think the nature of these words gives us a clue to kind of start understanding these two different fears. And I think we can be helped by thinking about a different emotional response. Think about tears. Think about tears. This is another physical response to an emotion, right? And what do we most associate tears with? When you hear tears, what do you think? Sorrow, right? Sorrow, that's what you associate tears with. It's usually like the, the pinnacle expression of sorrow is, is when you weep, right? But what else, when else do tears come? They come as an expression of joy also. Which, if anything's an opposite of sorrow, joy would be. Right, so these are completely opposite emotions. And yet this, this physical, the pinnacle physical expression of both is the same thing. And that is very much kind of how these words for fear work. This, this trembling that these words describe, this this fact that you are just overwhelmed and overcome by what you are facing and experience. You are, you have essentially almost lost control of yourself because it is so daunting. Right? We get those when we're terrified. That's what we first think of, right? But these also come in things that aren't, we don't associate with negative stuff as well. Think about, so we do stuff like roller coasters and skydiving. Right? And you have a physical response when you do that stuff. I've, I've done some things that are scary but fantastic <laughs> like at the same time. And I like to be scared that way. There's, there's an exhilaration in something that, that is just unique that comes with it. Right? Sometimes you might feel this when you see immense beauty. Right? Like you see the Grand Canyon and you're just kind of like, like lose your breath. Like it's just amazing. Think about seeing a bride on her wedding day. You see the groom, right, and how he responds. Or maybe when you hold your new baby for the first time. Right? And, and what that can do to you. For me, it's also come up when I've been uh, shocked by, by grace, frankly. When I was in a bad spot or had done something horribly and was expecting bad and then I got good it just floored me like in, in a way that I couldn't explain so is this starting to make sense do you guys see how this there's this commonality that all fear has right that where it essentially overwhelms you right it kind of takes over your faculties 
Fear is always connected to something that we love. Good fear and bad fear, because we're afraid of losing something, generally, right? It's connected to something that we love and care about. It has a physical, bodily effect on us. And the other thing is, is it tends to capture our minds and hold them, right? When you are on a roller coaster, you're probably not daydreaming about anything else, right? When you're holding your new baby for the first time, your mind's probably not wandering, right? Like when you are in something like this, when you're in something fearful, like it, it captures all of you, right? It's, it is just overwhelms and pulls you in. And that, those are common threads between both kinds of fear. But now we have to start differentiating, right? Now we have to differentiate because there are two very different types of fear. And there's lots of, you can call them anything you want to. Uh, authors, theologians throughout the years have used many different names. But I'm going to call the negative one, the one that we should avoid, sinful fear. Sinful fear. Because it arises from sin. It did not exist before sin. Uh, it all comes since the fall of Adam and Eve. Right? And it, and it comes because we are sinners. And that has changed our relationship with God. We were created to be in relationship with God, to be in fellowship with him, to be satisfied by enjoying him. And our sin separated that relationship and made God our enemy. And that brought a different kind of fear into the equation. And there's lots of examples we can see of this in scripture. One is Adam after he fell. In Genesis 3.10, after Adam sinned, God comes to the garden looking for him because what happened before sin is God would walk with Adam and Eve in the garden. They would fellowship together. But God comes this time, and Adam's hiding. And Adam said, and God says, Adam, where are you? He said, I hid myself because I was afraid. That had never happened before. Adam had never been afraid of God before. So that's one example of this fear that is not the fear we're talking about. Another one is in the parable of the unfaithful servant in Luke 19.21. I talked about this in a sermon probably a month ago. Right? These servants get a different number of talents that they're to steward. And two of them, they use their talents and they double their amount and the, the master comes and he says, well done, good and faithful servants. You get more now and keep going. But then the last servant comes and he says, I know you are a harsh man and you steal from other people, you harvest where you don't sow, and so I just buried it because I was afraid. He totally misunderstands the character and nature of his master, and it totally shapes how he lives and how he uses what he has. And he's condemned for it. And he's condemned not primarily because the master really needed that extra talent, but because of how he misunderstands and misperceives and misrepresents his master. Or we also see this in James with the demons. Right? In James 2, um, James is talking about faith that saves. And he talks about the faith, this faith that demons have. And he says, they believe and shudder. The demons know a lot of true things about God. They know who he is. They, they know very well how powerful and mighty and everything he is. But God to them is terrifying. They dread him. And that is not the kind of fear we're talking about. And we got a bunch of, actually Ecclesiastes is a great example. The, the fear that Solomon brings up in Ecclesiastes is not the kind of fear we're talking about. Not the kind of fear we're called to at the end. There's all kinds of 
threads we can trace in Ecclesiastes where this happens. But at, at one point, Solomon says, hey, we don't know what God's doing. Like, he, we can see this stuff, but we don't know if he's, he's doing good or if he's doing evil. His idea of God is just, God's really powerful. He can do whatever he wants to, but we have no idea what's going on. And so God is scary. And God's this wild card that is powerful, but you have no idea what he's going to do. And he can't be trusted. That's who he is for Solomon and Ecclesiastes, which is why Ecclesiastes has the tone that it does, why it has the heaviness that it does. So now at the end of the book, we're being called to a different kind of fear. So looking at those examples, how does this kind of fear respond to God? Well, it dreads God. It dreads God. It sees God as pure threat. God is dangerous. God is a threat to my well-being. All right. It is also antithetical to faith. It is produced and feeds into doubt, not faith. This is the, the demon one is really important for us because the demons don't have real faith. They know true things about God, but they do not trust God. And that's the contrast that James ends up painting out. Right? So this kind of fear has nothing to do with faith. It breeds doubt and suspicion of God. This kind of fear also, it does not drive people to God. It drives them away from him. Adam hid. It's antithetical to love. It does not make you want to love the one you're afraid of. It makes you want to fear them and to see them as the enemy. Lastly, it is grounded in a distorted image, a distorted understanding of who God is. It might recognize some true things. It usually recognizes some true things about God. Solomon saw some true stuff about God, that he was powerful, that he knew and controlled the future the way that people didn't. There were lots of good things, but he was missing very, very important ones. So his picture of God was distorted. It was broken. It was not true. It never recognizes all of who he is. And if you have a picture of God that does not represent all of who he is, it is faulty. This, this goes, one of the ways we understand God and the way we talk about him is that he is simple. It sounds a little weird at first, right? It doesn't mean that he's simple and that he's like dumb or something like that. It means that he is not made up of parts, right? You can't piece him out. You can't say, take God's justice over here and put his mercy over here. He is all, all that he is all the time. And so once you have a picture of him that cuts out aspects of who he is, it's a different God. It's not him anymore. And that's what this fear always does. It's always a distorted, broken perception of God that drives it. Right? This, this shows up and you'll hear things like, oh, the, the God in the Old Testament was wrathful and judgmental and everything, but the God of New Testament's all about love and grace. Or God the Father is harsh and judgmental, but Jesus is nice. That's hogwash. That's, not, that's just complete, completely wrong. It's actually heretical. God is who he is all the time. He never changes. So that's where this fear comes from. And, and so what does, this, what does this kind of fear produce, this kind of fear that we should avoid? Well, it leads you to create an alternative reality, right, that you to live in with no God or a God of your design that you can tailor to fit in such a way that doesn't scare you, right? Atheists uh, have this kind of view of God. 
They recoil from the very notion that there, that there is a God. They hate and despise who they think he would be if he did exist, and so they fancy a reality where he doesn't, and they like that better. You know, it's been kind of trendy lately for people to, uh, uh, oh, what's the, what's the word? Deconverting, de apostatizing is the old-fashioned word, but we've got a, what's the word that everyone uses now? Deconstructing, yeah, that's the one, thanks. I like apostasy better. It worked for a long time, right? There's people leaving the faith, right? But it's interesting, as you watch some of these people talk, and what they are leaving, it's never, <laughs> I've not yet to see one of these people talk about it where they've actually communicated truthfully who God reveal, has revealed himself to be and what he says. It's some distorted image that they got because they were taught poorly or they twisted things themselves or something like that. They've created a new reality that gives them an off-ramp to go do their own thing. Right, so there's atheists, apostles, leaving things altogether. It also creates idolatry, right, where we make gods out of other things that don't scare us so much, that are less threatening. And I think perhaps the most relevant to us, because you're sitting here in a church, is this can breed a very dangerous kind of legalism. A legalism where we pursue a certain external obedience to appease a wrathful God, to... This God is, is mad at us, he's a terror, and so we do enough good stuff to keep him on our good side. All the while, secretly, we despise him. Martin Luther talked about this very honestly and bluntly when he talked about his experience before he converted and came to understand the gospel. He said he spent his entire life trying to obey, to keep God off his back, and he, he's, I think he's loathed. He said, I, well, I loathed him. He hated him for the judgment he felt and the guilt he felt, and yet he felt it, so he had to do stuff to try to relieve it, and he was utterly miserable. And we, as Christians, can get to that same spot. Even once we're converted, we can start to see God in that way, and we can live our life day to day as if we are trying to get God off our back. And that is a distortion, as we're going to see as we go on. Now, there's one thing I do need to draw out that is... I almost called this wrong fear, but I didn't, because there's a sense in which this fear is right. And, and this fear is right if you are an unbeliever. Right? If your trust is not in Christ, there's something that's very true about this fear. Uh, the dread of God is absolutely 100% rightly felt if you do not trust Christ. Because you, like all of us, you were born a sinner. You fall short of the holy righteousness of God, and because of that, there will be a judgment, and that judgment will not go favorably for you outside of Christ. So if you feel a dread from God outside of Christ, you are right to feel that dread. You should dread God. But that is not the end point. You should not stay in that dread, and you do not need to stay in that dread, as we're going to see. That dread is meant to drive you somewhere else, right, as it ultimately ended up doing with Martin Luther. He did not stay in that place. He found something different that we're going to see in a minute. So, church, this, this fear, this, this dread of God that keeps us recoiling from him or, or externally obeying to keep him off our backs it's not the fear we're being called to in Ecclesiastes. There's nothing about this fear that glorifies God. This is not what God wants from his creatures. 
Think about it. God reveals himself to us as a father, right? Who of you out there is a father, a parent, an uncle, a friend, wants people to respond to you like that? Is that satisfying for you? If you walk into the room and your kids recoil and hide in the corner from you, is that glorifying to you? No. And God is better than you are. This is not what he desires. This is not what he is calling us to. This is not the, the fear that is meant to, to be at the core of our existence as human beings. And it is certainly not the type of fear that God's people are to have. So what is this fear? Now we get to the good stuff, right? What is this fear that we are called to have? What does it mean to fear God rightly? Well, with sinful fear is grounded in and associated with the dread of God, with, with distancing from him, running away from him, with distorted understandings of him, with unbelief and doubt. Well, right fear is tied to very, very different things. John Bunyan put it this way. He said, godly fear flows from a sense of the love and kindness of God to the soul. And we'll walk you through a few passages that talk about the fear of God, that let us see what this fear is connected and how radically different it is from what we already looked at. The fear of God is not being afraid of God. The first one I want to start with is Isaiah 11, 1 through 3. This is a prophecy of Isaiah of, of Jesus to come. And listen to what he says. There shall come forth from a shoot, from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. All right, so three things from here. First of all, first, this is talking about Jesus. It's talking about Jesus, and it's talking about him delighting in the fear of the Lord. Right? So the kind of fear that we are called to have is a fear that we can ascribe to Jesus, a fear that Jesus himself would have who never sinned, who had never had any fear of judgment from his father. Right? And he didn't just have it as part of the incarnation, part of what he took on to be human, sacrificed for us. It says he delighted in the fear of the Lord. So whatever we say about this fear, it has to be something that Jesus can love in his perfection, in his flawless, perfect righteousness. Jesus can have this and love it. That's pretty big, right? We were already in a totally different world than we were living in, in the last kind of fear. And then just think about that, like, he delights in it. How often do you, do you associate fear with delight? Those are strange things to put together with how we naturally think of fear. And yet, that's what we see here. And we also see that this fear comes from the Holy Spirit. Right? It says that the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord will be upon him. Which is interesting because Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 2 that God's not given us a spirit of fear. Right? And he's talking about the Holy Spirit. So, there we have not a spirit of fear. Here we have this Holy Spirit gives you this fear. We are talking about different things. All right, so this fear comes from the Holy Spirit. It's a fear that Jesus in his perfection can have and not just have, but delight in, rejoice to have, revel in. All right, let's do another one. Jeremiah 33, 8 through 9. 
There we read this. This, is a, this one is a prophecy, is a promise of the new covenant that's to come when Jesus comes. And this is what he says he'll do for his people at that time. He says, I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me. And I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise, and a glory before all nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. Did you guys hear what he tied the fear? He said, they will fear and tremble. He uses both the Hebrew words here for fear. Why? Because of all the good and all the prosperity I give to them. Do we think about this with fear at all? He's saying they are going to tremble and fear. They're going to be so overwhelmed because of how abundant I am towards them, because of how good and generous I am to them. They're going to be so captivated by that that it causes them to tremble. Like, it just takes over their bodies. One last one. Well, two, but I'm going to hit the same point with them. So one, Jeremiah 32, 38 through 40. There we say, And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant, and I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me. So we talked about how the sinful fear, what does it make us do? It makes us run from God. He's a threat. He's an enemy. But what does this fear do? In the last verse it says, I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they won't turn from me. This fear is not a fear that's going to drive people away. It's a fear that's going to draw them in and make them come towards him. Charles Spurgeon called it, it's a fear that leans towards God rather than away. It draws us in. It doesn't turn us away in fear. So church, these two fears, these are not like slightly different variations on each other. These are radically different things. They are polar opposites. They're diametrically opposed to each other. Sinful fear dreads God. It despises him. It hates him. Right fear of God is not the opposite of the love of God. It's the opposite of being afraid of God. This is why in 1 John, we read that true love casts out all fear. Even while we're called to fear God. True love, knowing that you are in Christ, drives out that sinful fear so that we can fear and be dazzled and overwhelmed by the the grandeur, the majesty, the glory and the mercy, and the grace, and the kindness, and the goodness of God towards us. That is the thing that just overwhelms us, that we can't process, that just is too good. It's just too much. Not dreading and despising him as we fear punishment, which is what First John goes on to say. Perfect love casts out all fear, because fear has to do with punishment. And this fear has nothing to do with punishment because our punishment has fallen on Christ. And that's the last thing we have to note about this fear. It's interesting, so many of those passages that I read were tied very distinctly to the new covenant that comes in Christ. 
Isaiah is the prophecy about Jesus himself. The ones from Jeremiah are specific promises about the new covenant itself. And that makes total sense because that is the only source for this fear. I forget one of the guys I read. I'm not going to be able to give him credit. I'll remember later. But he calls it an evangelical fear, a gospel fear, basically. Because it's only once the fear of punishment, once that relationship is changed between you and God, that the whole dynamic shifts. Until you are in Christ, until his sacrifice is paid for your sin and you are clothed in his righteousness, God is dreadful. God is a terror. He is the worst thing in the world for you. But as soon as that flips, as soon as you are clothed with Christ, it all gets turned on its head. Right? Because there's no punishment left. You have been the recipient of perfect love that casts out all that sinful fear. There's none of it left. The tank is empty. And so now this right fear, this right fear, this, this being overwhelmed, not by the dread of what's going to befall you, but being overwhelmed by how much you've been given, how good God has been, that backfills it and takes its place. That is what we're called to. That is the fear that our lives are to be dominated by. And we cannot have it until we are hidden in Christ. I think what happens a lot of times with this fear of God is that it ends up getting treated as a, almost a counterbalance to grace. Right? So we don't get too, too into grace and forgiveness and mercy. So you know, we got to throw, throw the fear in there so we don't, so we don't get out of hand. But I want to make sure we get too caught up in the joy of God's mercy and goodness towards us because if we do, people might misbehave or something. But what it actually means, what the fear of God actually means is the exact opposite of this. It's the exact opposite of this. The fear of God is to be overwhelmed and overjoyed by his love and his mercy and his grace. It is not designed to be a buffer. It is not designed to moderate us. It's designed to do the opposite. It's designed to push us further. That's what the word means, that you're, you're literally overwhelmed and trembling because what you are experiencing is so overwhelming. This is not meant to counter grace, to make sure you don't get too satisfied in what God has done for you. It's doing the opposite. It's saying, no, see it more. Go more deeply into it. If you're struggling with sin, it's not because you've got too much grace. It's because you don't understand grace enough. You need more. You need a richer understanding of what you have in Christ. Not tap back into some fear and dread of what Jesus has already covered. That will not produce what we want to produce with it. The fear of God is not a counterbalance to grace. It pushes us to delve fully into it, to be completely consumed by who God is and how he acts towards us in Christ. That's what the fear of God is. And I want to show you how this plays out in a passage from the New Testament where I think this comes up a lot just as, as a way to, just to see the contrast because I think it's amazing. It's completely transformed this. Philippians 2. 12 through 13. This comes right on the heels of the beautiful passage where Paul has talked about the humility of Jesus taking on flesh and coming and the work that he did to deliver us from our sins. And on the heels of that, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Right? So to work out your fear, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. 
This is not. Okay, Philippians, yes, you've been saved by grace, but don't get out of yourselves, okay? Make sure you, you check that. Make sure you get, remember, you better obey or else, right? So you've been saved, but you better toe the line, right? It doesn't give grace with one hand and then take it away with the other. That's not what it's saying. It's saying this. It's saying, Philippians, like, look at your salvation, since you've received such a great salvation, look at how good and gracious this God is who would do such things for a sinner like you. Right? He's not pointing them back to dread and fear of punishment. He's pointing them to like, look at this salvation you have. That is going to fuel your good works. That's going to fuel your obedience. If you struggle to obey, it's because you don't understand the riches you've received in Christ. It's not because you need more threats and you need to be brought into doubt about the sufficiency of Christ's work for you. Paul wrote a whole letter to the Galatians about how bad this is. And he said anybody preaches it is accursed. No, it's look at how good this salvation is that you've received. Look at how good and gracious this God is who saves sinners by humbling himself. Let that reality overwhelm you and become the controlling reality of your life. Let that reality dominate and flow out in all that you do. And I love the next verse, because he says, for it's God who works in you, both to will and work to pleasure. So you know what? Not only am I not going to threaten you to make you do it, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the thing in you. Work out your, fear, your salvation and fear and trembling, and it's God who works in you. Right? So you have this kind of fear, and I'm going to be the one that puts it in you. Right? This, is, this passage is an incredibly glorious comfort it's not meant to hold the hammer of the law over your head again. But when we don't understand the fear of God rightly, that's what we end up doing when we see the calls to fear God. We turn what is an incredibly beautiful gift and a privilege of being a Christian, right? The fear God is something that belongs to you uniquely because you are in Christ. You get to just revel in the absolute, utter, overabundant goodness and grace and mercy of God. That's your job now, Christian. That's good duty. That's good duty. And church, this is part of the reason God has given us communion, which we're going to take now. Because as much as this is something that God works in us, he does not work it in us perfectly and as a finished product right away. Right? We are going to still struggle with the sinful fear. Right? We are going to get distorted images and ideas of who God is towards us. We are going to think that we have sinned too badly and that Christ is not sufficient for it, so we need to make up for it. We are going to think that when we do sin, that we can't go to him. We need to go fix it first before we can come to him. There's all sorts of ways we can get this twisted. And so what God has given us is means of grace. Means of grace. Things that he does to remind us and to reorient our hearts to this truth. Reorient us to the right fear of God. And communion is one of those things. And I'll explain it more after we're served the elements here. But there's three tables in the back, middle and the sides. There are clear cups that have wine purple cups that have juice, two cups stacked together, the bread's on the bottom. This meal is for the family of God. So if you are 
one of those folks I talked to earlier who's not trusting Christ, this meal isn't for you. And that's because we want to withhold anything from you. Uh, we love you. Uh, and we deeply want to partake of it with you. But it doesn't benefit you now. Um, and I'd love to talk to you about why that is and, um, and, and the rest of what we talked about today. But this is a family meal for people who are in Christ, who he died for and gave his body for. So as we sing, we'll go, we'll receive the elements, and then I'll come back up and, and lead us through how God, through this sacrament, encourages and nourishes our faith and, and helps, and he works that good fear into us in part through this meal that he's given us. So you guys would stand and let's sing and worship.